Is that thunder? Kind of looks like a storm coming up, Bill. I mean, we've been walking down this lost highway for a little while now. Kind of a chill in the air. I do not want to be caught out in the rain. Oh, it's starting to sprinkle. Oh my gosh, did you hear that? Well, now it's raining, and I do not want to be out here getting wet. So, do you see, is that a house up ahead? Well, let's run up there and see what's going on. Man, we gotta have shelter. This is a creepy looking house, Bill. Uh, it's either that or get rained on. So, yeah, take your pick. I'm already getting wet. Okay. Should we, like, knock on the door or something? Yeah. There's no answer. Well, dude, let's just go ahead and go in. Is it locked? No. All right, let's, let's go in. I don't think anybody lives here. Yeah, there's no lies here. Hey, there's a fireplace. Well, you go ahead and have a seat. I'll, I'll make the fire. Hey, there's a chair right here. Oh, there we go. That'll warm your bones. Okay, this is a creepy-looking living room. Well, wait a minute. What was that? No, never mind. I just hear anything. Did you hear something? Nah, we're just here. It's just spooky because it's an old house. Yeah, that's right. what it is. Well, you know, Eric, it's Halloween. Yeah. We do these Halloween episodes. How cool is this? We're in this old creepy house. <laughs> well, at least we have a fire. Yeah, it, I'm starting to feel better already, the warmth. Well, I'm going to go ahead and sit down. Mm. I think it's time to tell some Halloween stories. Oh, dude, I was hoping you'd go here. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. Now I find it hard to believe that you and I have not talked about the origins of some of the most common Halloween traditions, Eric. Spooky, spooky, scary, scary. I mean... This will be the third time we've sat down around a fire to tell Halloween stories. Whoa, what would, but did you did you just see something move over there? No. I think I think you're just making stuff up, dude. Okay, okay. Yeah. So just you know, did you know that instead of carving pumpkins, they originally carved turnips? That doesn't seem right. Well, maybe <laughs> look online. Maybe you get a chance and look at one of these carved turnips. It doesn't look right either. That's creepy. It is weird. Uh, the original intent was to frighten away evil spirits, and it was based on the legend about a man named Stingy Jack. Jack trapped the devil and would only let him go on the condition that Jack would never go to hell. When Jack died, he found that heaven didn't want his soul either, and so forced to wander the earth as a ghost for all time, the devil gave Jack a lump of coal and a carved out turnip to light his way in the afterlife. That seems like a raw deal. I'm almost certain I've told a version of that story on the last two Halloween episodes, too. <laughs> so it seems weird that it come back to haunt us. Haunt us. <laughs> haunt us. <laughs> um, hey, did you hear that laughter over there? That was not me, dude. Are you okay? I, I don't feel good <laughs> here. Seeing ghosts originated with the Celtic Festival of Samhain, which I've known we, we've known, said that before. Right. Uh, the day marked the end of summer and the beginning of the cold, dark winter. And the Celts believed that the boundary between the worlds of the living and the dead would become blurred on that night. And that the ghosts of the dead would return to roam the earth. Dressing up in costumes also started with Samhain. The people would light bonfires and wear costumes to ward off the ghosts. I have saw some of those early costumes. They are creepy as hell. Oh, man. Halloween <laughs> costumes in general until about the 80s are fairly creepy. Yeah, I mean, you know, you look at some of the horror masks and stuff today, but you look back on some of that, so it's disturbing. Much like this house. <laughs> now, bats, as a symbol of Halloween, also started with Samhain, because, you know, you light a big bonfire, and what does fire attract? It attracts bugs. And bugs attract bats. In later years, bats would become known as harbingers of death and doom. And in Nova Scotian mythology, a bat settling in a house meant that a man in the family was going to die. However, if it flew around the house and tried to escape, a woman would die instead. Interesting. Now, trick-or-treating 
has a much debated origin. One theory is related to Samhain, where the Celtic people would leave out food to appease the spirits, and then over time people would begin to dress like these unearthly spirits and take food and drink offerings from people as they went through the neighborhoods or village or whatever, you know, settlement they had. Another theory stems from the Scottish practice of guising, when during the Middle Ages, children and adults would collect food and money in exchange for prayers for the dead on All Saints Day. Geysers eventually stopped giving prayers in favor of songs, jokes, and other tricks. A third theory says it evolved from the tradition of, and I love this word, bell-snickling. 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 A German-American Christmas tradition where children would dress in costume and visit their neighbors to see if they could guess who they were supposed to be. And in one version of this tradition, children would be rewarded with treats if no one could identify them. And you said Christmas. It was a so Christmas obviously tradition. That's, that's a few months in, in, in well, the future from Bell Snickle was one of those uh, companions of Santa Claus that we talked about once upon a time. Ah. This fire is feeling pretty good. You hear that? No, it's just... That's my imagination. Yeah, yeah. We're all right. Now, the black and orange colors also originated with Sam Hain, and for the Celts, black represented death, which pretty common. Yeah. And orange symbolized the autumn harvest season. Chicken seems fairly common, but, I mean, that's, you know, of course, thousands of years of tradition. It seems common, right? Right. Now, Halloween parties did originate when American colonists came to the New World, and on All Hallows' Eve, uh, they would have play parties. Private parties thrown to celebrate the harvest. People would dress in costumes. They would read each other's fortunes, and they would tell scary stories. Now, kind of like what we're doing. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I I have my own tradition at my home where we watch scary movies all through the month of October. Absolutely. We always try to watch Trick or Treat sometime in October, preferably before Halloween. It's a great movie. It's underrated. I mean, it it did not get at the limelight. It's like Creepshow. It's kind of these individual stories that are kind of woven together. And one of my favorite little... They're making a second one. I saw that. Yay. One of my favorite Halloween characters is Sam or Sam Hain, Mm -hmm. the little toddler in the orange pajamas with the who wears the jack head mask yeah i don't know i mean i used to take my kids trick-or-treating that was really fun but you know now they're a little old last time we took went trick-or-treating we brought our dog with us and she was not ready for people in costumes to be running around <laughs> it made it very awkward for us we had to return home early did you just hear a laugh over in the corner of that that was you i heard you laugh i i did laugh but there was somebody that <laughs> laughed at my laugh well, I've got, since we're sitting here in this old creepy abandoned house here with the fireplace, I've uh, I've got a tale of the Gasconade River Witch. I don't know if you ever heard this one. I've lived around here my whole life, Eric. I've never heard about a Gasconade River Witch. Well, this one kind of uh, I was involved with kind of personally. So the Gasconade River, you know, it flows through Lee County here near Lebanon, Missouri, where we're located. And there's a river access just out East 32. There's an old campground there that my family and I used to visit every summer, multiple times. There we would do the normal family stuff, camping out with family and friends, fish and swim. Even had a little volleyball court area. It's pretty cool. But some of my favorite times were on the river after dark. We would set trot lines and limb lines and go out and try to catch some big catfish. Now, the Gasconade really isn't that different from any other river, but this area has several natural springs, uh, very deep areas that around here we call eddies. I know some people have never heard that term when I've mentioned that. It's like a, just like a turbulent area of water. And yeah. It can be like a, like a whirlpool almost. Yeah. Like when you see them on, you know, in the ocean or whatever, but yeah, well, that idea. One of these, it was about 20 foot deep or so. And it had kind of a bubbling spring that came up from deep underground, a a cave apparently that was underneath there. Uh, Now this has led to, well, not just that one, but Gasconade has several of these, and that's led to several accidental drownings uh, where fishermen, especially with waders, would wade out. Uh, Their waders get full of water, and before they could get them off, they'd be pulled down to to their demise. There's one particular spot, a tight curve in the Gasconade where one of these exists. The water is very cold there, obviously. It's spring water, you know, in that underwater cave. Now, floating past it, if you look close, you can see kind of this rock bluff overhang. And at the base of that is this old pioneer root cellar. What's left of maybe a water wheel? Can't really tell. There's just not a lot of it still there. But apparently, this was part of an early pioneer's homestead. 
and they took advantage of this cool water and this overhang of this this bluff to help preserve food. Now, if you follow, there's an old trail off the riverbank. Back in the day when we used to go there, that'd been mid-1980s, there was still an old small barn and a partial rock house that you could make out from you know, under the underbrush. Now, one night, it was about 1983, we were running limb lines in that deep area of the eddy, there where that curve was. And it was that same vicinity of that old cottage. And I swear to you, we saw what looked like a couple lamps, like old, old oil burning lamps from that stone house. Now, nobody had lived there as long as I can remember. Half the roof was gone, one of the walls was collapsed in, but there was like this weird smoky fog that seemed to gather on the river. And we had our spotlights out trying to, you know, penetrate this fog, but we were lucky to see maybe 10, 12 feet. Uh, we were running the trot lines and the limb lines. And the area of the river here was about 30 foot wide. Um, the banks, it was shallow on each side, but then it dropped down really deep, like 25 foot or so. Now we knew that because we had a, an anchor with a rope and it was nothing more than a big coffee can full of concrete and a rope tied to it. That sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. So, but we, that gave us, we knew that rope was like 25 foot and there was times when it wouldn't touch the bottom. So we know, we know it was deep. Now, as we pulled up underneath that overhanging, that, that bluff, uh, there were some branches on the first trot line and we heard twigs snapping and rustling. The leaves were kind of moving over by that old cottage where these lamp lights was. Now, we assumed there was probably some, you know, some kids having a little party or something back there. We tried to mind our own business and kind of hoped they'd do the same thing. But um, got to thinking about it. If you didn't go by river, you would have probably had to travel at least five miles across fields with several fences, private property. It would have been difficult to get there, but there was no canoe, no boat, no nothing pulled up. It was kind of weird. So you wouldn't do that to go party? I don't think I would go that far. No, three miles, three and a half miles, maybe not five miles. No. Well, the current of the river had picked up here as it kind of went around the corner, and we had the anchor out, trying to kind of stabilize ourselves, and we kind of drifted underneath that bluff. We were trying to steady ourselves, like I said, but then we heard this god awful, terrible commotion on the opposite bank that sounded like literally like a tree branch break. Like that? Yeah. Weird. Weird. Well, it, in a few moments, this branch, and now I'm going to be honest, we're, we're teenagers. I'm going to say this branch was probably six foot, just gets thrown out in the river. This was not a dead branch. It had leaves on it. I mean, so we were like, what the heck is going on? Now, we, we of course had the spotlight. We shined it over that direction. We saw some, I'll say some movements maybe, but it's hard to tell. The wind was picking up, you know, couldn't see that far. So... We thought, okay, well, these kids were partying up there by that cottage. That's the opposite side of the riverbank. And then we heard this creepy-ass female giggle. It was so eerie. And with the acoustics of that bluff, I couldn't tell which side it came from. And, you know, I, I, my buddy Shane, he was out there with me. And we both heard it. We just we didn't say a word. We looked at each other. It was like, did you hear that? You know, but without saying it. And the... the panic-stricken terror look on his face was probably the same as mine. So we go on, we check the, the first limb line, we hadn't caught anything. The second one, it kind of startled us because we had a big old catfish and it smacked its tail and water splashed up on us. <laughs> we were, I mean, it, it, it was perfect timing and we're like, okay, focus, focus, focus. So it was probably an 18 inch catfish or so, it was a nice catfish. So we got that in the boat and kind of forgot about it. You know, forgot about all this other weird crap. Meanwhile, the branch floated down the river. You know, so we went on to run the next one and the next one. We didn't get anything else. And then we heard that creepy woman's... I won't say it's a laugh. It was more of a... Yeah, like that. Like that. Ugh. Make the hair on the back of my neck just stand up. How'd you do that? I, I wish I could claim I did that, Paul. I don't know how to politely say this. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. So... We're at this point, it's like, okay, we are done. We, you know, we're, we're trying to pull up the anchor, and we're under this bluff. Now, this bluff is probably 25, 30 foot tall, and it's hanging over, so like we are under the bluff, yeah, so I've, to speak. I've seen places like that on the river. And I mean, they look really neat, don't get me wrong. All of a sudden, you know, 
what's the one thing, and I don't know if you've done trot lines and limb lines, what's the one thing that's, that's your big fear if you get up underneath a tree when you're out in the boat at night? My thing would be like a snake dropping down Absolutely. You. I don't want that. We hear this thunk drop into the boat. And of oh, course, man. that's exactly, it's like, there is a freaking snake that has dropped in the boat, but it didn't sound like a snake. So Shane is the closest to it. He has the spotlight. I'm still trying to get this catfish on the on the trot line or on the uh, stringer. On the stringer, I'm trying to get this catfish on the stringer. So Shane shines this spotlight to the front of the boat. Dude, there's a deer skull with flesh still on it. What the? And like chunks of fur. Ugh. There's like moss and crap hanging off of its antlers, and it's like where the did this come from? <laughs> now again. If someone was up on top and we're thinking there's some people messing with us here, they, if to drop that, it would have been like 10 foot out in the river. We're underneath the, the, the bluff. that you would need. I, somebody was like basketball skill, like throwing it underneath and bounced and ricocheted. <laughs> Needless to say, you know, we're 14, 15 years old. We pick up the paddles and we are getting the hell out of Dodge. And as we look back towards the cottage that's up in there, we only see one lamp now. There was two burning earlier. So we're like, okay, somebody's up there on top of this bluff messing with this. You can say the other one went up there to mess with you. Yeah, yeah. And then we see something block out the light of the one that's still there. Shane's like, do you see that? And I look, and literally this super thin, I would say a human-looking person, but like in a black gown, is blocking the lantern and it, whatever it is, it's coming down the path, I'm assuming, closer to us. We paddled like we have never paddled before. And, of course, we're paddling against the current. We're trying to get up out of this eddy. The water's churning. There's some weird stuff going on here in the water. This fog is so thick at this time. So we're, we're trying to you know row and get away and get away. And then we hear this giggly laugh again. And at this point in time, it's like, I don't know who's pranking with us. But at this point in time, we're starting to think it's not human. So we paddle and we finally get the heck out of there. We, we paddle upstream and this fog and stuff just ends. We, we paddle right out of it. It's right there. Could be because of that spring water. I don't know. And anyway, we made it away. Now, later on, we, we told this story. And of course, like all teenagers at that time, it's like, man, you'll never guess what happened to us this weekend, you know, down the Gasconade River. Come to find out, that area was supposedly haunted by a witch by the name of an Abigail Munson, an early pioneer. She was accused of killing her husband, but later we had heard that he had drowned in the river. So maybe she had something to do with it, maybe he didn't. Again, Gasconade, unfortunately, has claimed a lot of people's lives. They had been a family of four. They had two young boys, and legend has it that the woman was a Native American healer. And after she had lost her husband, kind of got grimacing there they said that she sacrificed her two sons pushing them off that tall bluff into the spring it was a deer skull not a human skull thank goodness <laughs> but uh you know when we started piecing together the pieces of the story and there was a lot of different stories that old cottage nobody had lived there till like the 1910 1915 i think was the last time but apparently the old woman lived there the rest of her life and they did not find her for several months after she died. And apparently she froze to death one winter. And all she had was a single coal-burning lamp that she said that, that, that she was found with. The fireplace had collapsed and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. So I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say we might have experienced <laughs> the Gasconade River Witch. I don't know. But that giggly laugh is creepy. It sure is can't say I've ever been out on the Gasconade at night. Now, I've been out there a couple times early morning, but, you know, still. And the fog is not that you know uncommon, especially early morning, well, if, late at night. But. Particularly when you move into fall season, especially. I yeah. think the water is still this a little bit warm. Year. And when the, the air temperature cools off, it can get downright creepy with that, that fog coming off the water like that. We had some high creep factor, I'm telling you. Kind of like this house. I mean, this is the house. Just a house. Did I ever tell you about my experiences with sleep paralysis? I've heard bits and pieces, but I don't know if I've heard the whole story. So first of all, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I was trying to, to find myself, I think. I think we all do that at that age. 
and I started to dabble in some things. I'd always been into the paranormal and, and stuff like that, but I'd found a book in a bookstore. It was like $3 or something. And I know this was, you know, mid-90s or late 90s at this point in time. But it was one of those things, you know, it was like, this book was $3. It was super cheap. I was working a job where I was making minimum wage. So cheap was right up my price range. <laughs> Did you get more than you paid for? Well, this book was called, was written by Arthur A.E. Waits, which is familiar, the, mm-hmm. the Rider Waite Tarot. Yes, yes. It was just like, essentially an encyclopedia of magic. But, you know, if you want to be that kind of guy, magic with a K, you know, real magic, old magic. And it had, like, the breakdown of how to do spells and, and summon spirits and elementals. And, you know, it talked about the keys of Solomon, which if you know what I'm talking about, mm. you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. But that kind of stuff fascinated me. I used to take that book to work and, and read it while I was running my machine. The job I had then, as long as your machine was running, they didn't really care what you did. At one point in time, the, the young lady I worked with became convinced that I was a Satanist and devil worshiper, thanks to my friend. <laughs> I was out sick one night, and she... He taught her that I was in all kinds of evil stuff while I was gone. And when I come back, she never looked at me the same again, which was unfortunate. And she was a very religious young lady. So, of course, obviously, you know, my, my buddy being who he was. But I had gotten into these kinds of things. I was very fascinated with magic and, and the paranormal and, and, you know, psychic phenomenon and things like that. Now, to set the scene, set the stage, so you can understand the surroundings I would have been in. The house we lived in, we... Me and my brother slept in the unfinished basement. It's a pretty common thing. This was a, a big basement that essentially, you know, the whole area of the house was the basement. And right in the middle was the stairwell. The only windows, there was one on the other side of the room from where my bed was, which would have been on the other side of the stairwell, so right. I wouldn't be able to see any light coming from it. And besides, we were out in the country. It wasn't like we had street lights. And then there was like a square window in the door, which the door was... Not too far from where my bed was, but I was working nights, so I covered the window and the door. Right. No light. I mean, Fellow was, night shift worker, I totally yeah. understand. It was pitch black in there when we would go to bed, when we would sleep. All right, quiet down now. I'm trying to tell the story here. So I remember the first time that I had one of these these episodes, which I will say was, was sleep paralysis now, but I'll, I'll get into why I believed it was something different at the time. But I remember waking up, quote unquote, to a shadowy figure looming over the foot of my bed staring at me i know it was looking at me i couldn't see facial features i couldn't see anything but i know this figure is looking at me and i not creepy at all i cannot move i cannot move i feel like i'm struggling for breath and i'm I'm terrified this thing's like there's something in my room and i can't move and and i don't know what's about to happen now did you notice like a drop in the temperature no i couldn't say that now mind you okay this will show you time I had a waterbed at the oh, time, a yes. heated waterbed, so oh, no. Yeah. No, I wouldn't yeah. have noticed even if there was. Okay. I was nice and toasty. But this figure's looking at me. I can't move. I feel like I can't breathe. And then within moments, seconds, it's gone, and I can move. And my first instinct is to get the heck out of that room. <laughs> so I jump up, and I run up the stairs, and I, I run into the bathroom. Because, you know, my parents, my mom was a night owl. And for whatever reason, this this happened at night the first time. But again, we kept the room very dark for, for you know, because of that. Because I slept days most of the time. I went into the bathroom and acted like I was going to the bathroom. But instead, I was just trying to calm down. Like, <laughs> like oh, thoughts. I didn't see what I thought I saw. That was weird and creepy and scary. And then when I finally got the nerve to go back to bed, it was one of those things. Like, you know, I left the door at the bottom of the stairs open so the light would come down from the stairs. So that there was some kind of light there. So a few days go by. I feel okay, you know, I'm getting used to this. And it was this creepy experience, but one and done. Chalking it off. It happens again. I wake up, room's pitch black. There's a figure. Only now the figure is literally the right side of the bed, standing between me and my radio, which my I had like a tall radio console thing. And that was literally set up so where I could just reach across without even getting out of bed to, to hit buttons. So it's between me and the radio. Very close. Looming over me. I will say at this point, I believe that whatever it was was female. Don't ask me why. I, again, I don't see features. I don't see any details. It's just this shadowy shape standing over me. And again, I can't breathe. I can't move. I can't react. I can't do anything. I'm freaking out. Because you're in a waterbed. Have you tried to get up out of a waterbed? <laughs> well, I was, I was younger <laughs> then. I couldn't get out of a waterbed now to save my life. 
So I, I come back to my senses. I come back to myself. The thing disappears, and I do virtually the same thing. I go upstairs, only this time I don't go in the bathroom. I just kind of sit in the living room with my mom and watch TV for a little while. And she's like, oh, you having trouble sleeping? I'm like, yeah, I can't sleep. And then I go back to bed eventually. And mind you, again, at this time point in time, I am into supernatural, paranormal, the unexplained. I've got books on voodoo. I've got books on magic. I've got books on all kinds of stuff. And you mentioned you bought this $3 book. I've got this $3 book. And no lie, Eric, again, I think I've said this on the podcast before. I'd be lying if I said I didn't try. You know what I mean? Right. Like, you've got the book. It tells you how to summon a, a wind elemental that's going to lead you to gold and riches. What could possibly go wrong? you got to try, right? So in the course of reading, and mind you, the internet's primitive back in those days, but you can still get online and, and find some stuff. I figure I've been the victim of an old hag attack. And what that literally is, is that you have angered some other practitioner, and they have sent a spirit against you. And an old hag attack, as I read, described in different, you know, places on the internet and different books, is, it is literally, you can't move. There's something there, something watching you, and you can't react to it. And it, you feel paralyzed, like you can't breathe and all that. I've heard about it. I've never experienced it, but I've heard about it. So, a few years go by, time goes by, I discover myself as... If that's the phrase you want to use, but I, <laughs> I, I become the person that I am now. And somewhere along the line, I, I read about sleep paralysis and how people experiencing sleep paralysis will see things and, and have manifestations because basically what it is, is when your body is asleep, the reason you don't lash out and react to every dream you have and like wear yourself out trying to run from whatever or, or do whatever, the reason you're not doing the motions that your brain says you are is because your body says, okay, shut down. Downtime click you know basically shuts the body down uh this is my understanding of the things i read but there's a there's a moment where you can come out of you can wake up but your body hasn't caught up to where your brain's at and so you open your eyes you're awake and you would like to move but you can't got that delayed reaction and your mind is still processing like it's in a dream so you will see things and you will experience things before your body can react now unfortunately still happens from time to time Typically, it's when I sleep in an uncomfortable position, but like on the couch. Like if I'm laying yeah, on the couch. Fall asleep in the living room on the couch. You got your, your head on the arm and it's kind of cro cro crooked just so and it's uncomfortable. There have been times where I've woken up and I, I literally feel like I cannot move. I cannot move my arms. I can't move my legs. I haven't seen anything in my, my sleep paralysis moments since I was a teenager. But absolutely, I've had these sleep paralysis moments and it is just even, even when you know what it is, to me, it's still a terrifying experience. Oh, helpless. Be because I mean, you got that helpless well, feeling. Yeah, what if what if everything doesn't click into place this time? You know, and I'm I'm like this forever. Paralyzed. Yeah, I mean it, it's horrifying. But it's and I know people see different things and, and there's there's some some theories about sleep paralysis and why people see the things they do. People talk about their sleep paralysis demon, which I assume, you know, I could label whatever I saw as a teenager. Now do the you other, think this was tied directly to this three dollar book? Is that at Is the time I did. At the time I did. I believe. And I had friends that told me. I had a friend who was very much into the occult. And he told me that. He's like, you have angered someone. And they have sent this against you. And man, back in those days. I mean, I like to think I'm a smart person. But back in those days, I would have bought into that hook, line, and sinker. And so then the question became, who did I anger? So I started like seriously considering the people around me that I had interacted with. Whether it was at work or personal life or whatever. Trying to figure out, like, okay, who did I make mad that can do this? And really, the only person I could have come up with was my friend at the time. Like, he's the only one that was into the same kind of stuff. So I'm like, the one that called you out against the very religious young lady that yeah, you worked one, with. Yeah. So horrifying, horrifying experience. And like I said, even today when it happens, even though you understand what it is, it's still a terrifying experience. The fear is real. All right. Well, I've got another story I'm going to share. Uh, this one is called, I'm going to call My Brother the Soldier Returns Home. And it uh, takes place in a little town of Pierce City, Missouri. That's in the southwest lower region of the Missouri Ozarks. There was a rural farming family there by the name of the Sinclairs, and they had settled a parcel of land of about 50 acres. There was the father, Andrew Sinclair, and his beautiful, meek wife, Lucy, and their two sons, Michael and Donovan, who were twins. The father, Andrew, was a hardworking man, but had fallen on bad times and seemed to have bad luck that followed him no matter where he went. 
But to be fully understood on the story, we need to go back several years before Pierce City. He had met his wife, Lucy, up around Chicago, Illinois, in the January timeframe of 1920, and the couple soon wed. Little did Lucy know, but would soon come to understand that her husband was a violent man and an alcoholic. After losing several jobs in the Chicago area where he worked as a contractor and doing odd jobs, he was arrested several times for drunken bar fights and even petty theft. Now Mary gave birth to twin boys, Michael and Donovan, but only after a friend of hers rushed her to the hospital after finding her unconscious at the bottom of a flight of steps. This was in their shared apartment building. Now again, rumors spread that her husband Andrew may have pushed her down the steps and then left her. But Mary, being meek and quiet, dared not speak of such a thing. She went on record and told the doctors and police that she had simply hung her foot in her dress and tripped down the steps. Now regardless, Mary sustained a broken rib on her left side and in doing so had caused damage to one of the unborn boys, Michael. When the twin boys were born, Michael was smaller and weaker than his brother Donovan. The accident or occurrence also resulted in the weaker Michael being born with physical and mental issues. He would never learn to speak properly, no more than partial sentences, and would never be able to care for himself without assistance. This outraged the father, Andrew, who made it very apparent and clear to anyone who would listen, these boys could not be mine. The one did not even have, in his words, quote unquote, more than half a brain. Still, Mother Mary loved the boys equally and did her best to provide and protect them. As time passed, the boys became teenagers and then finally into young men. Donovan grew to be over six feet tall and strong as an ox. Little Michael walked with the assistance of a walker and of course struggled. Now Father Andrew had great animosity towards Michael, often yelling at him, calling him stupid, and told him, quit acting out, get up and walk, boy. Donovan, his brother, seemed to be able to quiet his father, Andrew, whenever he was around, quite possibly because he was already stronger and taller than his father. So this took some of the stress and worry from Mother Mary off of her mind, and the alleged physical abuse from the father seemed to stop for many years. Often he would just stay out late and come dragging himself in by morning. Still, Andrew blew through most of his job salaries as a regular at several, several Chicago brothels and bars. He was in and out of trouble, it seemed, almost constantly. One particular incident involved him and a man by the name of Jonathan Tuglow. He was a local lawyer's son. The two had run into each other at a local bar one night, and once again Andrew found himself at the wrong place and the wrong time. Drunken, he made accusations of the esteemed young lawyer's son, Jonathan Tuglow. Although the men did not even know one another, Andrew accused Jonathan of sleeping with his bride Lucy years prior, and things quickly escalated to a fight. Andrew managed to slip out the back door when an ambulance was called to treat a gashing head wound to Mr. Tuglow due to a broken bottle that had struck the side of his head. Sadly, Jonathan Tuglow would pass away due to a blood aneurysm to the brain, possibly attributed to that bar fight. And Andrew Sinclair found himself with his family, Mary and the boys, leaving town in the middle of the night. Mary had distant relatives in southwest Missouri, and a distant uncle had left her a parcel of 50 acres of land directly to Mary. There they would attempt a fresh start, far away from Chicago, and hopefully escape the wrath that would surely follow from the lawyer's family. This is what brings us and the Sinclair family to Pierce City. The boys, poor Michael and strong Donovan, were now almost 20 years old. They were uprooted from any form of normalcy that they had, being forced to live or leave their friends and once again be crammed into a small house together with their drunken father and their sweet mother Mary. Donovan and his father Andrew did not have good relations, yet Donovan helped his father around the farm, plowing and planting and tending to the fences and the animals and whatnot. Frail Michael often helped his mother inside the two-bedroom farmhouse, where his father would often return after a hard day of work 
and ridicule his son for acting like a woman rather than a man. Michael and Donovan had a strong bond, not only by sharing a bedroom, but Donovan was literally his and his mother's guardian angel. On many nights where he would deter his drunken father from hurting his mother or brother. On one particular evening, the family was gathered in the living room, listening to the world's affairs on a used radio they had saved up enough money to purchase. This was a night of history, September of 1939 to be precise. Over the airwaves, the announcer told of a man from far overseas by the name of Adolf Hitler, who had invaded Poland. Each night, the family returned around the radio for updates from Germany and Poland and the looming dark cloud that would become World War II. After several months, Donovan seemed so moved that one night in particular he stood up and declared he must go and fight in the war and protect those who could not protect themselves. His mother teared up, knowing her son was correct. It was something she knew all too well. Father Andrew just shook his head, yelled across the room, Go ahead, leave. You're my only help around here on the farm. You leave me with a woman and an imbecile who can't even walk or talk. He grabbed an open bottle and stormed out into the night, slamming the door. There was a very bittersweet embraces and tears as Donovan left the next day. Over the coming weeks and months, things were not terrible. Andrew seemed to reapply himself, and the farm carried itself. Donovan wrote every week, and the letters trickled in from the war front overseas. Andrew would deliver the letters to his wife, but would never read or be around to hear them read. Michael always looked forward to hearing from his brave brother, now a soldier in the army, and he often boasted about it at the supper table, about how brave his brother was. After a year or so, Andrew fell back into his old ways, drowning himself in a bottle, yelling and screaming for Michael to shut up about his brother's act of bravery, moving up into the ranks. He even went as far to tell Michael, Donovan is not brave, he's a coward who walked away from us and walked out on you, but you're too stupid to understand that. Mary stood up at the table upon hearing this and raised her voice to her husband, telling him, you are the coward and a drunk. This resulted in a huge fight, one resulting in blows from drunken Andrew beating his wife, Mary, over and over again. The feeble Michael attempted to get in between, but Andrew quickly knocked him to the floor and kicked him several times before storming out of the house, disappearing for several days and nights. Several more months passed, and both Andrew and Mary noticed Michael retreating to his bedroom more and more. Often he could be heard talking to himself, or so they presumed. Finally, one day, Mary entered the bedroom and asked Michael, Who are you talking to? Michael turned and smiled. I'm talking to Donovan, Mama. He's not good. He's hurt. Mary rushed in to sit next to Michael on the bed, and they began to cry. Mary asked, Michael, what would make you say such a thing? Michael, crying, tried to explain. He was, he was shot, Mama. He's scared. Andrew heard the conversation from outside in the hall and quickly screamed, Shut up, you fool. You know nothing. However, in coming weeks, a different kind of letter arrived. It was from the U.S. Army stating that Donovan had fallen in battle and had been killed. They were preparing to bring his body home. Something seemed to snap in Father Andrew when this occurred. He denied what the letter said at first, but then later wept as he drank by the fireplace. He became enraged, talking and mumbling to himself. Finally, he stormed into the boy's bedroom where he drugged Michael out and threw him into the living room floor. You caused this, you're a freak. You're the devil. Mother Mary raced down the hall and threw herself literally on her son Michael laying in the floor, crying, stop, stop it now. Andrew picked up a log from the nearby fireplace and swung it, striking his wife, breaking her raised arm, then took turns kicking and punching both Mary and Michael for several minutes. Michael cried out, Donovan, help us. No, daddy, stop. Mary again threw herself over Michael, trying to shield him. But this time, Andrew's boot hit her square in the skull, and her unconscious body became dead weight and rolled over. Andrew again yelled, You stupid imbecile, look what you made me do to your mother! Andrew stormed out of the house and into the darkness as Michael crawled to his mother to hold her in his arms, trying to wake her. Days passed, and the family went to claim Donovan's body. 
to lie him to rest at the local church cemetery. Most of the bruises were still present, but well covered. Mary covered her broken arm with a knitted shawl and kept her head covered in an oversized bonnet. Michael sat directly behind her doing his best to comfort his mother. Still the citizens of the towns could not help but notice. Andrew was quick to make up a story of course, and he said he had come home one night as the house was being robbed, but he was able to run the men off, but not before they had hurt his family. Michael and Mary dare not say otherwise. The funeral services were small, as many did not get to know the Sinclair family as they kept to themselves. However, during the graveside services, Michael, using his walker, made his way up next to the pastor and stumbled through a few words. Father in heaven, protect us all from evil. We know Donovan with you soon, but please let him come home one more night. Thank you, God in heaven. Andrew shook his head from the audience as Mary goes up to retrieve Michael. Michael turns, Mama, Donovan's coming for supper tonight. She smiles and they soon make their way down the country roads back to their home with Father Andrew driving the old farm truck. Upon arriving home, Andrew hastily tells Mary, you'll be ready for supper in 20 minutes. He's going to do chores. An hour passes as Michael and Mary wait around the table and the food is getting cold. When finally Andrew barges in the door, took longer than it should have since I'm the only one that works around here, he stumbled to the table reeking of alcohol. He sat down and immediately starts eating, then spits out, this is cold crap. What are you trying to do, kill me? Mary quickly gets up and takes the food from her husband. I'm sorry, Andrew, I will warm it up again. As she approaches, he backhands her across the face. Don't you go getting smart with me, Missy. I work hard around here. I provide all of this for you and him, as he points across the table to Michael. Michael states, Daddy, this is Mama's land, not yours. To which sets Andrew off yet again. He staggers around the table, lunging at Michael, when suddenly there's a loud boom from within the house. A gunshot. As the front door slams shut, there is a thud as Andrew falls to the floor, just shy of reaching Michael. Mary and Michael turn and look into the shadows of the living room. There by the fireplace hearth is a sharp-dressed soldier holding a military rifle, the ghostly image of Officer Donovan Sinclair. He takes a few steps closer as Andrew gurgles and rolls over on the floor. By God's grace, what are you? The ghost replies, Why, Father, do you not recognize me? I am a guardian angel, and you will not hurt Mother or Michael ever again. I am home, and I will take care of them like you never would. Andrew sets up as blood squirts from his chest and gurgles, staring up at his son. You were always the best part of me. Thank you. The ghostly image of his son kneels beside his father. Go now and may God have mercy on your soul. As Father Andrew falls dead, there's a knock on the door. A group of church folk who had dropped by to leave food for the family had heard the gunshot. Mary races to answer the door in tears. As several peer inside the house, the ghostly soldier of Donovan fades into the shadow. What on earth happened, declares one of the church deacons. Michael replies, bad man, daddy shot. He's gone now. The church group quickly remembers Andrew's story of the robbers that broke into the home. So the robbers came back and Andrew got shot. That's terrible. Where did they go? Mary said, there, out the back door just a moment ago, as she turned and raced back to her son Michael embracing him. The church men quickly investigated, but of course found nothing out the back door. The local newspaper front page read, Terror grips the Ozarks, leaving the man of the Sinclair house dead at his supper table. But Michael and Mary knew the truth. It was a bad man, and he was now gone, never to hurt them again. Their guardian angel, Donovan, had seen to that. Over the coming years, Michael improved, being accepted into some of the new medical treatments of the time. He began to walk without a walker, and only now with the aid of a cane. With extra speech classes, Michael also began to speak more and more, 
actually finding a niche in writing several short stories and even two novels. The mother Mary remarried one of the local church widowers who helped provide and care lovingly for Michael and Mary. Father Andrew's body was buried at the local church cemetery, but a few years later a large oak tree was struck by lightning and fell crushing his gravestone. If you can find the old church cemetery, many claim if you look at the shattered Sinclair tombstone, especially after dark, you might see or hear a World War II soldier pacing back and forth. Some legends say he's guarding the church cemetery from trespassers. Others insist he is there to keep things inside the cemetery from escaping. And so is the legend of my brother the soldier as he returns home. Well, that one was interesting. Mine's a little more down to earth, if you will, my (laughs) next story. Um, So I I work with a woman. I've been working with her for quite a while and, and... we know each other quite well. We've, we've watched our kids grow up. But over the years, she's been relating bits and pieces of a story to me, a little bit at a time, about something, a creature, that sort of roams the Missouri countryside. And this is at her folks' house, right? Not too far from where her parents are. Yeah, at her parents' house. And she's been, like I said, this has been related a little piece by piece, bit by bit over the years. It's, it's an ever-continuing thing. The first thing is, the creature does seem to be migratory whatever it is she says they never have any experiences with it in the spring and summertime but fall and winter it seems to come to their area and and i don't want to say cause trouble that's not the right word not the right phrasing but it's it's in the area and it kind of goes about its business she says if you sit out on the porch at night and and it's out there you can literally hear as it moves throughout the area you can hear the dogs barking at the different houses as it approaches and passes and, and moves into it as you know moves on like you can you can trace it you know like a line like one house and then the next house over and the next and so on and so forth as it moves around you'll know where it's at in the area based on the dogs and where the dogs are barking that's interesting you don't really hear that a lot in a lot of the stories but yeah i mean literally like if it's going say it's in the woods following the road you know, the house is in order as it goes up the road, the dogs will bark. Hmm. And so you'll know where it's at. Now, her, her parents have had multiple experiences with whatever it is. You know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this is a Sasquatch-type creature. Right. That's a Bigfoot of some kind. Possibly Momo. Maybe. We talked about Momo not that long ago. But definitely that type of creature because I believe one winter... Her dad had gotten up and was going out. And they, they, they live on a farm and... Her brother lives just down the road from the parents he bought, like, the next farm over. So they've got a lot of land out there as a family. And he saw these footprints come from the woods on the far end of the farm and come through the the field. And you could see these footprints. And it was a bipedal, you know, big, like a Bigfoot. Mm -hmm. And it was like it stopped under the window to peek in at them. And their house sits on a slope, so you've seen that. It would have been, like, seven or eight feet to look in the window right right and then the the footprints literally just continued on through the yard went up across the road and into the woods on the other side now according to the dad and the mom there's numerous times where they've been sitting there say watching tv or whatever and they would hear something walk around the house and, and they've just gotten used to it you know it's just the the I, don't, I mean it's just the visitor to them you know it, now does it ever like kill livestock or is there no. anything that's ever no, found tore up or no and, and see like i said they have farm like uh you know the brother has chickens they've, they've got some goats i think and he raises pigs and he's never found any livestock hurt or injured or anything like that hmm. which was a question i asked i said you got a lot of farm animals out there is it ever no and it doesn't ever seem to take anything but they uh They've heard it walk around the house. One point in time, I believe it slapped the wall as they were sitting there. Um, I'd get your attention. Now they have a they have a dog, and I guess the dog reacts to it. The dog won't go outside if it knows it's out there, but the dog will follow it like a like around the house. If you know what I mean, like if the say the creature walks around the house, the dog will follow inside the house where it thinks the creature's at. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. So I'm safe in here. Yeah, I'm safe in here. I'm gonna see if I can get a little peek or something. Now, a couple of particular instances that really got my attention was was one of them. Her and her brother and her daughter were going to go check. They were going to check a gate. I don't know if they were going to check in on something there, but they went to one of the the gates, and it was nighttime. And the brother gets out, and he's going to go open the gate, and he freezes. 
And mind you, these are good, wholesome country folk. The brother's usually carrying, you know, especially when he's going out at night on the farm. Right. Um, Never he, know what you're going to walk into. He freezes. And I guess he looks back at the truck and kind of does like the finger to the lip, you know, shh. <laughs> and he, he, and they're like, what? So, you know, she rolls down her window to see what's going on and she hears this noise. Yeah, like that. Uh-huh. I heard it too. And, I mean, like no creature she's ever heard before. And when she told me this story, we, we literally, at work on our lunch break, started combing YouTube. And we looked up, I started with Mountain Lion. You know, sound like this. No, it's nothing like that. Well, what other? I mean, coyotes? No, wasn't coyotes. I mean, she's from the area. She knows what coyotes sound like. Right, right. And we got common things, right? Skunks, foxes, coyotes. Well, I played I mean, gorilla yeah. sounds. And she's like, that was the closest we got the whole time. And even that wasn't right. So it was one of those, you know, what What did you hear? What was this thing? Was it this? Was it that? We, we brainstormed. Could not figure out for the life of us what it was. We did, however, find out that there's a documentary about Momo because I started, I proposed the idea, obviously. I'm like, you have this Bigfoot-like creature. I mean, we have Momo in Missouri. Yep. They said they've never noticed a smell. So well, that's Momo usually has Momo, the smell. Yeah, has a terrible, terrible stench. The other one that I really, the other story that I really felt compelling about this, her daughter's birthday is in fall, so Halloween-ish. And they like to do like a Halloween-themed birthday party. And one of the things they do is they do a hayride. I just heard a door slam. I think you're hearing things. I really do. Is this storm ever going to pass? So one of the things they like to do is a Halloween hayride. Right. And she invites all of her friends over. And there's a bunch of them girls there. And there's some boys, I believe, that live down the road not too far. They're roughly the same age and friends. Well, they're doing this hayride. They all load up on the, the, the hayride deal. They're driving around. And... Every now and then they swear up and down they see something in the woods. There's something out there. We're not out here alone. You know, they're freaking out. These 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 little girls are starting to freak <laughs> out. And at one point in time, I think it was the uncle maybe that was driving the tractor. He's like, no, there's there's 100% something out here. We're not alone. He's like, whatever happens, we're going to be safe. Don't worry about it. You know, there's nothing out here to be scared of. While you're exposed on a wagon yeah. with bales of hay, <laughs> legs dangling off. So they ride... And they come back out into the clear, you know, the field. And they're like, okay, great. You know, we're we're safe. And about this time, three figures come running out of the woods. Oh, and gosh. They can't quite tell what's going on. They just see these shapes. Well, they shine the lights on them. It's the neighbor boys. Ah. And they're like, they're scared. And so they run up and they hop on the, the tractor and they get back to the house. And they're like, well, yeah, I you thought guys? you were going to say they were pranking them and well, they were hiding. Okay. They say, what were you guys running from? And they said, well, we were out there. With the idea that we were going to scare you. Okay, okay. I wasn't too far off. But something kept watching us. <laughs> like we scared could, us. <laughs> we could hear something moving around in the woods, and it would get close, and we could kind of see, but we couldn't. We didn't know what it was. And so when the tractor left the woods, them, them boys came running because whatever it was was out there, and it scared them. They came running back in. Now, I, I told a story when me and my brother were growing up, and we grew up not too far from where this is. And, you know, we were settling in to go to bed one night when we heard this screech, wail, scream, something through the window. Because we, you know, we didn't have air conditioning. You slept with the window open. open. We're out in the country. Enjoying the cool fall breeze. And we laid in bed just terrified. And we were not too far from this. You know, my my grandpa used to tell the story of, of killing the fox that got in the hen house and leaving the corpse up on the fence post and coming out the next day. Something had drug it off. And having the big footprints around the base of it and something had taken it. So, you know, another story that's sort of semi-related and wouldn't be too far from where this is. Me and some friends went camping one night and we were down on the river and we had set up. It was kind of, uh, I don't know, almost like a like a gravel bed up next to the river. We had set up a couple tents and, you know, we did the, you know, hot dogs and marshmallows and you know, telling each other horror stories, and you know, we're out there in the woods at night. You know, we're we're supposed to do these. He's doing things. what you're supposed to do, absolutely. Now we all go to bed, and at some point, middle of the night, which it would have been late. You know, like I said, we were teens, twenty years old. We were we didn't go to bed early, but at some point, not too not too you know early in the morning, somewhere around midnight maybe. I remember waking up to a sound of like a tree falling over, which that alone would be scary. You know, if a tree falls on you in the woods. 
but it wasn't the idea that it was the tree that fell over. It was the footsteps I heard <laughs> that were moving away from my camp. And this thing would have been big, whatever it was. This wasn't small. And again, if it could push over a tree, again, it was not small. Right, right, right. So I don't think I got any more sleep that night until the sun came up. You know, Missouri. We, we, we've we, got our share of uh, we've got some stories. creepy stuff. And, and like I said, you know, my favorite stories are, is, is something like that where she, you know, over the years, this, this lady I work with has just told me these little bits and pieces of the story. But it's whatever it is, it migrates in in the fall. It leaves, you know, before springtime. She says it's never caused any problems, but never killed any have, farm has livestock. Has anyone really clearly ever got to see it, or is it just you hear it? She says they've put out trail cams. They've never got a picture of it. They've gotten pictures, but they've never gotten a picture of whatever it is. Gotcha. So hmm. no one's seen whatever it is, but it's out there. You know, I mean, there's enough evidence to suggest something's out there. Now, again, I said, well, do you have a mountain lion that maybe moves into the area or whatever? No, that's the, those were not mountain lion footprints. Well, and mountain lions have a very distinguished call or sound yeah. that they make. I mean... Yeah, whatever creatures roaming around where her parents live, that's... Which we're not supposed to have mountain lions, by the way. But no. Yeah, we, you can talk to anybody yeah. that's been around here any period of time. Missouri has mountain lions. There's game cam footage galore of mountain lions. Well, I've got one more. Looks like the storm maybe is starting to, to lift a little bit. So, uh, this is called Pulaski County, Missouri's Hounds of Hell. I was born and raised in Pulaski County, lived there my entire life. Never saw any Until I turned 23. Then I moved to Lebanon here. And I will say, I never saw a hellhound that I'm aware of. That you're aware of. I think you'd remember it. I mean, well, this has got kind of an interesting twist. But there's a small community called uh, Pulaski County. It's in the south central area of Missouri. and includes little towns like Richland and St. Robert and part of the military base that's now Fort Leonard Wood. Yep. Now, going back about 85 years ago, this is prior to Fort Leonard Wood military base taking over that area. There were several small communities and towns and cemeteries that were, you know, later claimed by the by the base in 1940, I believe it was. Cookville was one of those such forgotten towns, along with a handful of other small churches and, and areas that are that are torn down. Going back in history, there was a group of brothers. Now their name has become lost. I couldn't find it in history that lived, it said, in this rural vicinity, somewhere they think on what is now Fort Leonard Wood Base, in that vicinity. Now, these brothers were known for their prized coon hunting dogs that they raised and bred. They were some of the best, not only in Missouri, but it was uh, told in Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Kansas. The three brothers, all adult, as of the 1930s, it is said one had married but lost his wife during childbirth and unfortunately also the, lost the life of the unborn son. Uh, besides that, the other two were never married. Uh, they all just kind of stayed to themselves, uh, kind of backwood hillbillies, if you will. They, you know, bred the dogs and hunted, competed in a lot of the competition with their prized uh, coon dogs. Now, some would say they believe they were of Quaker religion. Some I've even heard maybe Amish just had kind of a little bit different beliefs so it wasn't that they didn't come out and and talk to people and stuff but they didn't go to church with the church communities that was there um, but again they attended all kinds of like coon hunting and, and com competitions and stuff like that now they were all all said to be very hard-working men said they always had their their property although it was just a few acres was well planted with corn and vegetables and even the men would take those in and trade them with the locals and, and stuff but during the mid-1930s it's recorded that there was a great loss of livestock livestock kills in the region of Pulaski County many heads of cattle and hogs and even horses were found dead under mysterious conditions now the weird part on this is some of the actual heads were severed and missing entirely. The corpse body wasn't eaten upon. It was just like their heads were cut off, which is a little different from any mountain lion or wolf or bear attacks that, that you could, you know, consider. Some of the others said that the, the corpses of the animals were ripped in half, uh, and part of them were actually fed upon. And as many backwood areas, you know, rumors and speculations quickly spread like sparks into the night sky on what could be doing this. 
They range from a pack of wolves that ventured from down north. However, that's pretty uncommon, even back in that time frame. Another speculation was a group of mountain lions, um, which seemed plausible. However, mountain lions generally hunt by themselves, not in you know packs or whatever the term may be. So then they said, well, maybe it was just an extremely large cat. But for whatever reason, a lot of goats, hogs, horses, and cattle were reported. Third, probably the most popular legend, however, is of hellhounds. And that's what they were dubbed. Many of the townspeople reported seeing glowing red eyes of multiple dogs, wolf-like, standing nearly four feet tall. Now, obviously, this probably puts you in mind as it did with me with dire wolves out of, you know, the Game of Thrones or Dungeons and Dragons. The story was put out to a test when a young girl, and she was either 16 or 17, was out collecting eggs from the chicken coop at dusk, and she was attacked by what she deemed was these hellhounds. Her screams were heard by her father and a brother who were working by lantern in a hay barn several hundred feet away, who obviously came rushing to her aid. Now, they said they spotted six or seven of these massive hellhounds, described with extremely long black stringy hair and glowing red eyes. They reported when they arrived, the hounds were, one particular hound was standing on its hind legs, ripping through the wire of the chicken pen trying to get to the young girl. They described the other beasts as having semi-human facial features, meaning not necessarily with the normal elongated snouts of a dog, but you know, kind of somewhere in between a human and a dog. Now, the far father fired several shots at his rifle, striking one of the beasts square in the head and dropping him immediately. Now, the others turned for a moment as if they were getting ready to lunge and attack the son and the father. They seemed to answer a howl, however, heard from the nearby woods, and the remaining beast quickly turned and ran towards it. No photographs, unfortunately, of the prints were taken, at least that I could find. But some sketches and measurements implied that the track was nearly eight inches in diameter. That's a big wolf, cat, what, whatever. Now, they decided, obviously, it was dark. They were going to leave this here and then take this corpse in the next day to town. As luck would have it, when they got up the next morning, the corpse was gone. But they could see where something had drug it off. Now, again, this creature was described as standing up on its hind legs, wolf-like humanistic form. Uh, sounded like, you know, probably seven foot or something. So whatever drug this thing off was pretty good sized. So they went into town and they reported kind of what they found. A lot of people ridiculed them. They laughed at them. But the, the three brothers soon heard of the attack and they decided to bring their prized coon dogs over to join a neighborhood hunt that same day their hopes that the coon dogs could actually pick up the scent from some of that blood and fur obtained and the drag marks, and they were correct. Six of their best coon dogs quickly picked up on the trail, following along a creek, seemingly following this trail of whatever it was that drug the corpse back and forth, and whatever it was, it seemed to zigzag across the creek several times. Now, according to legend, there was 20 or more armed men with the three brothers and the six dogs. They followed the scent trail several miles to a river cave that was well-traveled as far as pathway leading inside. They said they found piles of bones that had been gnarled and eaten upon and stated many of the men could not even go near the opening of the cave due to the foul stench of rotting meat. Now, the three brothers and their dogs continued into the small entrance, only about eight foot tall, at the mouth of the cave. Within moments, several gunshots rang out from inside the cave. The men outside could hear the dogs fighting with something in yelps of despair. Several more gunshots rang off, along with the sounds of the brothers screaming and the frantic sway of lantern lights ricocheting off the walls of the cave. After what seemed like an eternity, there was a burst of activity and sound from far up on the bluff. Whatever it was, it escaped through another entrance or exit, and the coon dogs were in hot pursuit. Some of the men then entered the cave and found one of the brothers had been killed, apparently by a stray ricochet bullet. The other two brothers were severely injured with giant claw marks across their torso. Now, after the funeral for the oldest brother, the one who had uh, wed previously, the two remaining brothers did not speak of the event. 
and in all honesty, the youngest never spoke another word out loud in his entire life. He seemed to go into some form of a trauma or a form of PTSD. The middle brother cared for him the rest of their lives, but they never ceased hunting down the hellhounds of Pulaski County. Almost every night for the next year, they took their prized coon dogs out and would run off the savage beasts and protect the neighbors and the livestock. Now, eventually, all three of the brothers' gravestones would end up in what is called Bloodstone Cemetery, along with a special marker, a worn old statue of coon dogs that have something treed. The dogs are leaning up against the sculpted tree, which obviously the top half of the tree is missing, which kind of adds and alludes to the dogs peering upward, braying at a hidden creature up further in the tree, hidden from humankind. The artist was unknown of who made the marker, but it still resides there today. Still on this day, many military security guards hear coon dogs call as they are protecting the area, they say, from the hellhounds. A few have even come forward to claim they have seen three ghostly apparitions, possibly of the three brothers, with their ghost dogs out in the training fields around midnight, making their own lines of defense to protect this area from the hounds of hell. And so is the legend of the Hellhounds of Pulaski County. You and I have a mutual acquaintance who once told me a story. Mm-hmm. This is in Pulaski County. Yes. We'll say 90s, early 90s. Sounds about right. Of being, and I don't know if they were like partying or whatever at a farm or in a field or something, but they were all out into this area and they had all taken this one truck to get there. And this is during the day. And what he would only describe and confirm that I've heard this story from two different people that were supposed to have been there that day that matches very similar to the description of the, these hellhounds this, this big black dog, bigger than anything. Long haired. Yeah. yeah, Long haired thing that came out of the woods and, and chased them to where they all took off running and hurtled into the back of this truck to get away from it. Not I knowing what else to that. do. I, I had totally forgotten about that. And that's in, that would have been in Pulaski County. Now I know I'd heard of the Nixa hellhound. And that may be a story for another day, but I, I knew I'd heard hellhound stories from this area. But the more I thought about it, I was like, that story. You might have heard of the story and not I might knew have it. heard it and not even known it, or at least some version of it. So, there we go. Well, it looks like the storm's about to lift. Yeah, I mean, once it stops raining, we ought to get out of here. It's not really, like, I'm not super comfortable with this. There's a hole here in the floor next to me. I about slid my chair my <laughs> my leg of my chair off in it a couple times well let's go ahead and get out of here goodbye bye whoever's there did i ever tell you by the time i was driving down the road and i passed this fence line on this old gravel road where there was no nothing else and all of a sudden this fence is here and on each fence post, there is a hogshead caped out. You know, oh my with gosh. The, with the, the, the deal. And I thought, man, this is some Texas Chainsaw level <laughs> stuff right here.